Welcome to the Living Faith Missionary Church Podcast. You're about to listen to a message from Pastor Chris Starn, Senior Pastor at Living Faith in Yoder, Indiana. It is our prayer that this message is an encouragement and a blessing to your life. If you open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, we are going to be in, oh, we in multiple places, but mostly in Isaiah 39. You know, we, uh, we live a, 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 as Christians, we live a very, sometimes very fractured faith. We at times, you know, we, we've had those times when we're, we're, we feel so close to God and we, we can sense His presence and, and we, we, we do all these things that He wants us to do and our lives seem to be so blessed and, and, and we feel close to God. And, and the, the thing about it is it's in the next moment we, we, we seem to be rebelling. Times of overbearing pride and, 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 and many times this outright rebellion against God happens amongst His, his children. It's a strange dichotomy. It's not like, we, it's not like that, that was what we desire because we desire, we desire to walk with Christ, but there are times in our lives where we, we, we are led away by sin. And while some of us, you know, I've been around a while, and I don't like to think about sin in my life as rebellion. But in reality, it is. Reality, when we, when we, we don't follow God, when we chase after the things of this world, when, when we're tempted to think things we shouldn't think, we are rebelling against our Creator who loves us so dearly. Paul, the Apostle Paul gives us great theological explanation of what this is. He does it in Galatians 5.17. He says, For the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the desires of the flesh. And that's, that's what's going on inside of us. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. See, the, the, the sin, the desires we have in our flesh for the world, it keeps us from doing the things of the Spirit that we want to do. It's, it's that constant struggle, the battle that's going on inside of us. The battle that we fight every day, and we'll fight it until we're no longer here on this earth, or at least until Christ comes back. And it shouldn't surprise us that this is happening. I mean, if, if you read Scripture at all, you, you read of the, of the people who experienced uh, the, the things we have in the Bible, and you, and you get a kind of idea, you can see this happening. We go back to King David. I mean, here was a man who is said to be a man after God's own heart. What we want to do, right? We, we want to pursue God. Our, we want our hearts turned toward God. But if you read the story of him, you start to see the places where he, he rebels. He's on top of the roof when he should be out at battle with his men. And he sees Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop. And what does he do? He sends for her. He desires her. Well, if that wasn't bad enough, because she gets pregnant, he has her husband killed. And then tries to cover it up. So he gets confronted by the prophet. And later on, he, he's, he's told not to, not to do a census. Why was he doing a census? Why was he numbering his men? He was prideful. And because of that, many people died. 
So you see that in David. You, you, you go to the book of Mark in chapter 9, we find the father of a, of a demon-possessed son who, who says, Lord, if you're able to, to, to heal him, and Jesus says, if I'm able, like, what do you mean if I'm able? Am I not God? Am I not? Who, I'm the Messiah. I can do anything. The man says, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. You see that struggle, the inner struggle. You have Thomas, who declares that he will, you know, he's a follower of Jesus. I love, I was on Facebook and somebody had posted, a friend of mine had posted that. You think about this. Thomas, Judas, and Peter had the most amazing pastor, a great teacher, a great friend, a great mentor. And one denied him, one doubted him, and one betrayed him. That makes you think. But Thomas, Thomas was with Jesus. He's seen all the things that Jesus did, and yet, and, and heard Jesus say that he was going to rise again. But yet, when the time comes, what does he say? I won't believe it until I stick my fingers in his wounds. But what happens when he actually sees Jesus? He doesn't do that. He bows down. He says, my Lord and my God. As I said, Peter who was close to Jesus. He's, he's the one, he was one of them who saw Jesus on the mountain and saw him standing with Moses and Elijah. And yet, when the time comes, he denies him, not just once, but three times. So you see this, the spirit and the flesh constantly struggling. In each of these circumstances, and in the ones that you and I deal with in our lives each day, we wobble between victory and stumbling. But the, the amazing thing about this, and we, and we see this in these stories in Scripture, these, these accounts of these men, is that each, Jesus never denies them. I mean, what should have happened to David? Well, according to the law, he should have been killed. But he repents. God forgives him. Now the child dies. That's the price we pay for our sin. So I not the price, Jesus paid the price, but it's the ramification, the end result of our sin. There still are issues we have to deal with, with even when we sin and we're forgiven. But Jesus doesn't condemn any of these men. And in Isaiah 42, we can see Isaiah talking about Jesus, which kind of gives us an idea as to why Christ doesn't condemn us for what we deserve. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen. This is, he's, he's doing a prophecy, and it's about Jesus. In whom my soul delights. This is God speaking. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. We know from previous prophecy that that is what Jesus, the Messiah, was going to do. So we know that he's talking about Christ. He says, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. Or make it heard in the street, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now I want you to understand that just because Jesus doesn't condemn us and deny us before God when we sin is not an excuse to continue down that path. Our desire and our devotion should be to live a life where, where our hearts are fully devoted to Christ. But you and I are a bruised reed. 
Jesus doesn't break us off and discard us. Even though at times that's definitely what we deserve. We deserve it. He didn't deny Peter in his disobedience, and he won't deny you and me in ours. He wants us to repent and return. He wants us to, to keep, you know, guard our hearts. He wants us to grow and not, you know, not continue to do the same sin over and over again. But when you and I find ourselves drawn away by temptation of this world, we're, 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 we're giving in to that battle that we have inside of us. But in that, the amazing thing about it is God, Jesus always provides a way out. When we are tempted, He provides a way around it. He bears our corruption and does not snuff out our fire. He doesn't snuff out the Spirit that that He put into us, that was placed in us by the Holy Spirit. If we go back and we, we read through the account of Hezekiah's life, because that's you know we're in that part of Isaiah where he's, he's inter- Isaiah is interacting with Hezekiah. We can, we can see a very similar pattern. He had these moments of great faith. We talked about it, you know, before Christmas, where you know the the army of the Assyrians are out there, and what is he? He has this letter that came from from the king of the Assyrians. From Sennacherib saying that what's, what's going to happen? And what does he do? He takes it to the temple, lays it out, and he prays. I mean, that's, that's, that's that high part of victory. He's, he's trusting in the Lord. And when he does it, he does it in sackcloth. He does it respectfully. He had moments of great faith, but then in the same instance, he had moments of great weakness and despair. His life as a pilgrimage, just like ours, very mixed. It shouldn't surprise us. In his, before that, in his weakness, he sends all the gold that he can find in the temple, in the palace, in the kingdom, to buy off the king of Assyria. Like a bruised reed, he does this. But then, like I said, in another instance, he stands before God in the temple with the letter saying, God, you've got to take care of this trusting that God is going to protect Jerusalem. So now we we come to the final chapter in Isaiah's interaction with Hezekiah as king. And what we're going to see is we're going to see Hezekiah's pride. We're going to see one of those moments where he, he he misses the mark. And it's going to lead him to a very, very sad place in his life a place that I hope none of us ever get to. So let's go to Isaiah 39. It says, At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he had heard that he had been sick and he had recovered. So what had happened was that you know Hezekiah was sick and he was going to die. And he prays, he submits to God, and he cries out to God, and God extends his life. And everybody hears about it. All the kingdoms around hear about it. And they start sending him gifts and, and sending people to him. So we get these people coming from Babylon. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. And he showed them his treasure house the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses, 
There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show him. I want you to understand. Hezekiah thought he was doing something good because, I mean, it would be like the President of the United States sending a list, and it just doesn't hold as much as it used to, but let's say we are at war. Let's say we're at war with Russia. Sending a list to Vladimir Putin of all of the military, where they are, all the weapons we have, everything that's in the Fed, all the money we have, all the gold we have. It's like sending that to him and saying, hey, this is where it's at. Here's where all our bases are. Here's where all of our, our weapons are stored. That's what he did. That's what Hezekiah is doing. Not realizing that this is the very people who are ultimately going to destroy Jerusalem and take them into captivity. He doesn't know. In fact, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes, we know that earlier, before this, that that Isaiah had actually prophesied that Babylon was going to fall, that Babylon was going to be destroyed. So I'm sure his guard is down. And isn't it interesting that when our guard is down, that's when Satan has a tendency to do his little games? He's, Hezekiah, he's, he's reverting back to this old pattern of the past, this, this pride. He places trust in what? Politics. And in a possible alliance instead of trusting Yahweh and Yahweh alone. In 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings, we can read additional accounts of this encounter with the Babylonians. And it says that he boastfully displayed it. He didn't just walk around and say, yeah, well, that's, you know, this is where this is. And this. I mean, he was like, do you see? Do you see all the men I have? Do you see all the armor? Do you see all of our swords? Look at the gold that we have. He's boastful. He never once, in all of the accounts, does he once say, do you see what God is doing here? He never once says, look, this is what God, you know, you think I'm so great? No, I am nothing compared to Yahweh. It's Yahweh. He is the one that made this possible. He never says it in any of the accounts. He says, look what we did. Look what we've got. But see, the thing about it is, is just because he doesn't mention God does not mean that God doesn't notice what's going on. God sees it. And he sends Isaiah to confront Hezekiah. Now remember, I've said this before, normally the king would not send for the prophet. And usually when the prophet came, it wasn't exactly for a good cause. It wasn't for, I mean, it was a good cause because it's God's cause, but it wasn't exactly to tell you, hey, Hezekiah, you're doing a great job and God is proud of you. That's not what he's doing. Usually when the prophet comes, it's usually to say, "Uh, we have a problem here. You're doing something you're not supposed to. That's the way it always works out. So Isaiah comes. Now we're not told that God is the one who actually sent Isaiah, uh, sent Isaiah to Hezekiah, but we can make the assumption that's probably what happened. And we can also assume that Isaiah is coming knowing what happened. I always try to tell the kids, usually when I ask a question, I usually already know the answer. At least I know what the possibilities are, and I usually know pretty much what they're going to say because they're kids. And I know what, they, so remember that, kids. Your parents usually know what the answer is before they ask you the question. They just want you to admit it. 
So what happens? This is what we see in verse 3. It says, Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Here's what Hezekiah says. He says, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. Now, I can imagine that Isaiah is thinking, do you, do, you, do you really think that was a good idea? Don't you remember what I said about Babylon? What's going to happen to them? And then he says to them, says to him, what have they seen in your house? Isaiah asked him, what have they looked at? What did you show them? He said, well, they've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. I mean, I'm sure that I, Hezekiah thought that this was a great meeting, that maybe some, maybe some good trade relations had started now. It was successful. I'm sure he was proud of what he had done. But I can imagine that when Isaiah asked him what these men wanted, he probably hesitated for a moment. Do I tell him? Do I tell him everything? And he does. He tells them, tells Isaiah, he doesn't lie to him. He knows he shouldn't lie to the prophet because God will tell him anyways. He's proud of it. This is Isaiah. Isaiah, had, had prophet, had foretold the fall of Assyria and Hezekiah's healing. I mean, he had prophesied all these things and they came true. But now he's coming with a different message. I imagine that it was very difficult at times to be a prophet. I, you very seldom, you know, you, you, I don't know if you ever hear about Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. Why? Because he had nothing but bad news to tell the people. It had to weigh on him heavily. Not to mention, you are experiencing God. You, are, you are actually have a relationship with God that most people don't. You're experiencing the unseen realm in ways you've never imagined. That's got to mess with your mind just a little bit. And now you're having to go tell people bad news, confronting them about what they've done. It, it was probably an extremely heavy burden for him to bear. It's always easy to give good news. It's tough when things are harder to share and when there's bad news. And this time, it's going to be tough. So Isaiah begins with those two questions. He says, what did these men say and where are they from? And see, what is happening here is Isaiah is inserting himself into politics. There are people who believe that the church should never talk about politics, that the church should never talk about anything controversial. And I'm here to tell you that, I'm sorry, but the Holy Scriptures, God's Word speaks into everything. And if we sit by and we don't talk about what's going on around us, if we don't apply Scripture to it, it's going to, it's going to surprise us and we're not going to be re- prepared for what's happening in the world. We are not of this world. We're in it. We, have to, we are going to experience things, but we need to be ready. And the only way we can be ready is if we look at the world from a biblical perspective. 
Beth and I are going to be doing a, a talk next week um, with one of the homeschooling groups about a biblical worldview. Why is it important for parents to have a biblical worldview? We need to speak God's Word into every part of our lives, whether it is politics, and I'm going to have to bleep this from YouTube because I'm going to say the C word, which is COVID. The vaccines, those are all going to have to be bleeped from YouTube or they will not let this video be up. But I, I have to say it. We, we need to speak God's word into these things. And that's what Isaiah is doing. He's inserting God into the politics. Because God is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is Lord of all. Everything. So Hezekiah is sharing that these men came from Babylon, and you can bet that they talked about alliances, military strength, power. But see, still, Hezekiah does not quite share with Isaiah the whole full picture. Because when Isaiah asked him that second question, what did they see? Hezekiah says, says that he showed, what he showed this group was everything that was in his house, but he didn't give him the details. I mean, you can think that, you imagine that Hezekiah is beginning to feel that there's a problem. Maybe what I did wasn't such a good idea. You know those times when, when you do something and then all of a sudden you start to realize and you get goosebumps on your skin, your hair stands on end, on your arms, and you're like, and you haven't touched the electrical, so you're good. So you know it's not that. You know it's because you've done something you probably shouldn't have done. I imagine that's how Hezekiah is beginning to feel. It'd be a different if, if Isaiah had asked one question, you know, where are these men from? But he keeps prodding him. So I imagine that Isaiah, Hezekiah is beginning to think, boy, there's, there's a problem. I, I, I probably shouldn't have done this. Hezekiah, Hezekiah probably realizes that Isaiah does know, and he's just asking these to get him to realize that he's done something he shouldn't have done. And then we get to verse 5. And Isaiah begins to tell Hezekiah why he actually has come. It says, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. It's like, so saith the Lord. Like I've said before, don't say that unless it really was coming from God. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of the heavens, the Lord of the unseen realm, the Lord of the heavenly host, the Lord of all. So says God, Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, everything that you showed to the Babylonians, everything that which was your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will come from you whom you will father shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now I want you to imagine that you're king and, this, and Isaiah comes to you and he tells you this. What, how are you going to feel? I want you to think about that as we, as we continue through this as I, I share some more information here. Because think about how you would feel for him to say those things to you. That everything that you were so proud of is going to be gone. And your sons who you're going to be proud of are going to be eunuchs, and we'll explain that in a moment. I mean, you can feel the goosebumps probably rising on his skin. Judah's going to be taken into captivity, but not by the Assyrians, who they've been fearing for so long, but by the Babylonians, 
What, is, what God has done with Isaiah, he has, he has given him a vision of the far future. He already, like I said before, prophesied the fact that Babylon was going to fall. And this, like I say, maybe why Hezekiah was kind of brazen in sharing all these things, thinking, well, these people, they're not, they're, God's going to destroy them someday. Why, why do I need to worry about them? Because back in Isaiah 13, Isaiah says, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor of pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. And then in Isaiah 21.9, it says, Behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of their gods he has shattered to the ground. But see, the thing about it is, is that God sees things differently than we do. And he knows what happens from point A to point B to point C and on. And he says, yes, I am going to destroy Babylon. Babylon is going to fall. But before it falls, Judah is going to fall, and you're going to be held captive in the Bab- by the Babylonians. And everything is going to be gone. It's a terrible future that lies in store for Judah. Everything, everything that Hezekiah has pride in, will be taken away and taken to Babylon. And even more degrading is what lies in store for Hezekiah's sons. They will be emasculated and become eunuchs in Babylon. It seems that, and if reading, reading the accounts, it seems that at the time of, of Hezekiah's illness, he didn't have any children. We really don't hear anything about it. But we know he did because here Isaiah is saying you're going to have children. So it's probably, you know, God had extended his life by 15 years, so he started having children. But what a dreadful, dreadful future for those sons. Because a eunuch, what a eunuch is, if you don't know, is a male that's castrated. So that he can be in the, te- in the, in the palace around the harem of the king, and they don't have to worry about him because he cannot he can't have sexual relations with any other women. Now, obviously, there's it's much deeper than that because if he can't have sexual relations with women, then he can't father any children. So in this instance, what God has done is he's not only emasculated Hezekiah's sons, but he has taking taken them out of the line of the Messiah. They can't have children. They can't be in the line of the Messiah anymore. And those eunuchs were usually advisors, counselors, and administrators. We don't think about this, but Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were all eunuchs when they were taken to Babylon. And they were advisors. And while this seems like a pretty dreadful future. I mean, I imagine, I don't think that, I really doubt if Hezekiah, when his sons were born, you know, when they got old enough, said, hey guys, guess what's going to happen to you one day? I doubt it, especially with what we're going to read here in a few moments about his response to what Isaiah is telling him. But I, I think to be taken out of the line of Messiah was probably the biggest blow. Devastating. So like I said, how would you react to the prophecy? 
What if Isaiah had come to you and said, everything you're prideful of is going to be gone and your children, your sons are going to never be able to have children. Your line will end with them. It would break your heart. But that wasn't Hezekiah's reaction. In fact, I think his reaction to me is rather confusing. But in reality, it's not, because if you think about his pride, and this is what he says in verse 8, Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. Good? For he thought, and this is why he says it's good, there will be peace and security in my days. How could Hezekiah call this good? I don't know about you and those of you who have children, but you know, I, I don't just think about me and my days. I think about my children's future. Why do you think I'm so adamant about speaking into the, the, the things that are going on in this world? Because I don't want my children to have a future that, that is the way it seems like it's going to be. I don't want my kids, I make sure my kids know about all of the transhumanism that's going on. If you don't know what that is, you better start looking it up because it's, it's coming at us at a fast pace. The technology that's... I don't want my kids... I want my kids to be aware of what's coming so they can be prepared. I want my kids to have a better life than I did because I know my parents wanted me and my brothers to have a better life than they had. I think about my kids. I think about my grandkids, hoping I have grandkids, hoping I'm alive when I have grandkids. I'm thinking forward. We're training our children to love Christ and to to be good people, to be, well, there's nobody good but God, but to be people who who love Christ and share the gospel and love other people. And and, and we're trying to train them on on how to be, you know, how to be good citizens. We're trying to train them on on how to to find the right spouse. And we we want everything good for them. But here Hezekiah is saying, well, at at least I'll have you okay. What's interesting is, you know, I, I can imagine that Isaiah's heart sunk. Do, I mean, do, do you not, it's not that you don't even, you don't just care about your son. You don't care about Judah. You don't care about Canaan. You don't care about God's name at all. You just care about yourself. I mean, even when Isaiah prophesies about Babylon falling, I mean, you can see the, the pain and anguish that Isaiah's having back in, back actually in Isaiah 21. He says, therefore my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I long for has been turned for me into trembling. Isaiah's heart is broken over the fact that Babylon, a pagan nation, is going to be destroyed by God. And I'm sure he is just as broken now to find out that Judah is going to be going into captivity. And the line of the Messiah is not going to come through Hezekiah, who was considered a great king, a godly king. There's nobody like him since David and nobody after him like him. Isaiah shares with Hezekiah that the people of Judah are going to be taken into captivity and his sons are going to be turned into eunuchs and all he can say is, oh, that's good. 
No, it's not good. Very, very short-sighted. And that's, we can understand that because Hezekiah constantly would rely on politics instead of relying on God, on Yahweh. He revealed all his secrets to the enemy who ultimately is going to destroy his family. But at least he'll have peace in his time. What a fool. What a fool. So what does this teach us? What can, we, what can we take from this? Well, obviously, we don't want to be like Hezekiah. That's pretty blatant. But we cannot trust the leaders and the heroes of our day. If you think you can trust the leaders, all you've got to do is watch what happens in Washington, and you'll realize you can't trust any of them. They're going to let you down. Whether they are political or they are religious leaders, they will let you down. Why? Because they're human, and humans fail. There's only one person, one hero that we should place our trust in, and that is Jesus Christ. No one else. Put your trust in Christ. Every other person has the ability and will more than likely let you down in some way or another. And I know that sounds very pessimistic, sounds very negative, but I'm sorry, it's the truth. Because we're human. And it happens. And granted, yes, when someone lets you down, you need to forgive them. And, and, you, and if they, they repent, you need to restore them. But understand, the only one we should truly trust in is Jesus himself. And guess what? You're going to let people down too. It happens. Put your trust in Christ. Because Jesus will never break a bruised reed. He's never going to break us completely off if we are repentant. He'll never leave us or forsake us. Remember, God searches our hearts. He knows our secret sins. God knew what Hezekiah had done even before Isaiah spoke a word. He, and back, even back then when, his, when, he, when he had Isaiah confront Hezekiah, he knew you at that moment. He knew where you were going to fail, and he loved you. He sent Christ to die for it. God will bring circumstances into your lives that will press on you and press on all of us and cause things to come to the surface. We see it in 2 Chronicles. We get more information on this account with the Babylonians. And it says, And so in the matter of envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, which was him being healed and the sun stopping and not going down, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. So what does that mean? What, what does that mean that God left him to himself? I, I think there are times when God pulls back from us. He never really leaves us. It's almost like, it, it's almost like when you're a parent and, and you want your kids to experience and learn something. So you don't just jump in there. You, know, you don't carry them across the, across the stone 
driveway. You know, you let them walk across, but you're right there in case they fall, right? God sometimes will pull back a little bit. I mean, it says, it says that God left him to see what was going to happen. He allows us to do what we will do on our own. What we really feel inside, what's really in our heart, will float to the surface when we're left alone, when God leaves us alone. And He does this to see where our, for us to see where our weaknesses are, and we will realize how much we need Christ, and we need to stay attached to the vine. Remember, Jesus says in John 15, 5, He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Just like Hezekiah, we are very susceptible to pride. And when God steps back this one step, that pride begins to bubble up. Hezekiah was full of it. And even in that, he was healed. And all the nations exalted him. Again, in Second Chronicles, it says, And many brought gifts to the Lord of, to Jerusalem and precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all the nations from the time onward. Pride is a pretty ugly thing, and it leads us to foolishness. You see, Hezekiah's attitude and our attitude needs to be what it says in Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us. But to your name. Give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. You and I, we must be diligent to fight our pride. We must remind ourselves constantly that everything that we are, everything that we have is a gift from God. Everything. It's not anything we've done. Everything comes from God. So guard your heart from the darkness of pride. The only thing that will defeat pride in our lives is the realization of the atonement of Christ, the cross that God, Christ died on, that worked for our salvation. That's the only thing that will defeat pride in our life. Not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of what Christ did on the cross. We, we, we've got to keep that in mind. Lastly, I want to say that we must have a multi-generational view for our children. You and I, as parents and grandparents, we can't just think of our own faith, right? We, we must have a, live a life that's bold, with a bold faith in Christ in front of our children and our grandchildren. See, Hezekiah had the attitude that it doesn't matter what happens to my kids because at least my life is going to be fine. I'm going to die and everything is going to be good. But we do know that his son Manasseh ends up becoming king. And Manasseh is one of the most evil kings that ever was. He restored all of the high places that his father had torn down. He goes down in history as the worst king ever of Judah. Because see, we need to care about it because God cares about our children and our children's children. He cares about the future generations. He died for us he died for your children, He died for their children, and He died for their children. We need to pour the gospel into our kids and our grandkids. We need to have family devotion times. We need to spend time reading the Bible together as husband and wife or as family together. 
We need to spend time in prayer together. Husbands, you need to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, you need to, to, to submit to your husband, respect your husband. And then we need to live up to that respect. We need to disciple our children. We need to talk about the Word of God when we sit down at home, when we get up in the morning, when we, when we go in the car, when we drive around. It needs to be on our minds and on our, uh, in our conversation constantly. Don't be lazy about it. Be diligent. We need, as a nation, as families, as a church, we need to be on fire for Christ. And we need to instill that into our children and into our grandchildren. We can't be like Hezekiah. Be prideful. Be boastful. And just be happy that our lives are good. Let them deal with it themselves. That's not the way to be. Be on fire for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're watching on YouTube, please like this video as it will help in spreading this message into the global online community. Please consider subscribing to our page so that you will receive notices when we post new messages. If you're watching this on Rumble, please hit the Rumble button for this video so that the gospel can be spread into the Rumble community. Also, consider subscribing to our Rumble channel. You can also listen to our podcast on Amazon Music and Apple Podcasts. We hope you have a blessed day.